0: This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, the new movie from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters now. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone.
1: Are we going to stand with God Come with me. That the Word of God says it,
0: I believe it.
1: And that's the way it is. And now here is Janet Mefford.
0: This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine. Only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at theJesusMusic.movie. Just recently, Maine's governor, Janet Mills, signed legislation to ban the practice of so-called gay conversion therapy for minors. And right after that, Colorado became the 18th state to do the same with its therapy banning measures signed into law by its homosexual governor, Jared Polis. But what if all the heart-wrenching testimonies before these lawmakers were, in fact, a huge hoax perpetrated and funded by some big groups and buoyed by powerful lobbying firms? My next guest says that's what's going on. Christopher Doyle is joining us. He is a licensed psychotherapist and leader in the therapy equality movement with the National Task Force for Therapy Equality and executive director of the Institute for Healthy Families, a nonprofit Judeo-Christian organization located in Washington, D.C., specializing in counseling solutions for... individuals, couples, and families. His new book is called The War on Psychotherapy. Christopher, great to welcome you back to the show. How have you been?
2: I'm doing well, Gina. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to talk with you.
0: Oh, it's always an honor to talk to you too. This is a huge subject. I look at our time and I think how in the world are we going to get through all of this? But I know it's a very important one because this is very, very troubling to me as well. The fact that we have had state after state after state after state ban what they like to term conversion therapy for minors. And you have the same story over and over where all these people are showing up teary-eyed, telling these horrifying testimonies. And yet I know a lot of people in the therapy field, who all say, okay, that's not happening. So what's the disconnect? Can you explain to people what's been going on here?
2: This is what happens when a sexual culture war is being fought on a mental health battlefield. And this is exactly the subtitle on the back of my book. I talk about how gay activists have been able to use sexuality, orientation, gender identity, all these subjects, very difficult to deal with, uh, taboo in, in Christian conservative circles, but something that the left champions as a part of the sexual liberation movement, you know, dating all the way back to the 60s and into today. And their narrative is is a simple one, that um, conservatives and Christians um, are oppressive, that that the rules around sexuality or the guidelines and values around sexuality um, are something that is not only um, uh, that they don't like, but that and trying to instill those in our children and our culture is, is, is torture and, Mm -hmm. and that, um, whatever you want, whatever you're attracted to and whoever you, whoever you want to be or love is perfectly fine as long as it's consensual and that there should be no restraints about that. And what they're doing is they're using this issue as a narrative, a false narrative saying that young people are being, uh, that are struggling with their sexual identity or gender identity are being forced into what's called conversion therapy. Right. And and they use the narrative very, very wisely because there's several well-funded uh, organizations, as you just mentioned, that have been pushing this false narrative by using uh, persons who go and testify in front of state legislatures that, in my opinion, are psychologically un- unwell and unhealthy um, that are telling stories that simply aren't the truth. Um, licensed therapists don't torture people. They don't use electroshock therapy. They don't use vomit-inducing nausea fluid in order to change people gay to straight. Day. Those things simply don't happen, but that's a narrative that's being pushed in front of legislatures, and that's why you see 18 states and 45 plus cities have banned this so-called practice conversion therapy, which in my opinion doesn't exist, and I give evidence as to why it doesn't exist, in my new book.
0: Yeah, well, so much to say there because you're right, we have seen these teary testimonies and yet I know from people like Ann Polk, for example, with Restored Hope Network, when they actually approach some of these people after the testimonies and say, Boy, your testimony was horrible about how you were tortured. What is the name of this therapist so we can make sure to help you publicize it? And all of a sudden they turn tail and run out of the room. They they yeah, never suddenly,
2: really suddenly they get yeah, suddenly they get temporary amnesia. Yeah. I can't remember any of the details. It's amazing. And, yeah. and I've documented several Several of these accounts in the book, and I give specific details of when I heard these people testify, when we challenged them to provide verifiable facts, none of them can do it
0: that's amazing and it's amazing that these lawmakers don't require them to say it if somebody truly tortured you and harmed you why didn't you go to the police or the licensing board or, or whatever uh, you know group was having authority over that particular therapist I mean and then you have the movie problem too Christopher you have movies coming out portraying this horrible thing that is happening to kids all across America how do they perpetuate this lie though certainly there have been outliers you know 40 50 years ago we're not denying it, that that but no licensed therapist like yourself would say that that's a reasonable way to do therapy. It's not at all. And, and that's been dealt with with other kinds of laws. So why is this lie being perpetuated? How, and how are, they, are these groups getting this done? How are they doing it? Any,
2: any false narrative or lie is based on a shred of, of truth and evidence. And so what they do is they take some outrageous examples that have, been, that have happened in the past. And I, I talk about a couple of these examples of abuse in my book. One of them is written by a, a young woman. Her name is Alex Cooper. She wrote a memoir called "Saving Alex," and she is a lesbian-identified Mormon girl. Uh, that when she came out of uh, out of the closet to her parents, her Mormon parents sent her to a uh, supposedly sexual orientation expert couple in Utah to convert her from gay to straight. Well, this couple wasn't—they weren't licensed, trained therapists. They were um, two individuals that thought they knew how to cure gay kids and, and troubled youth. And essentially this cu- this couple abused Alex made her do bizarre practices like um, carry a backpack of, of heavy rocks and stare at a wall for hours on end to, to s- simulate what they called was the burden of her sexual orientation. It was this, it, it is these types of crazy stories of abuse that occur in unlicensed, unregulated um, types of um, you know not you know pseudoscience right pseudoscientific practices that then get conflated and compounded to say that this is what licensed ethical therapy is, and so unfortunately you have a few of these stories that have circulated over the last number of years, and those get a lot of media attention. But unfortunately, and here's the irony right, banning licensed therapy won't stop those types of abusive practices happening. In fact, it will only make it worse, because if licensed therapists who are regulated by the state can't work with young people who are struggling, where are religious uneducated parents that don't understand sexuality and orientation gonna take their kids? Mm. Well, they're probably gonna take them to unlicensed, untrained religious facilities or churches that really don't know how to work with those people, and you might end up seeing more of these wackos like these people in Utah doing this type of crazy stuff but that's not licensed therapy. And that's what legislatures and lawmakers don't seem to understand. They seem to be buying this false narrative that this is what licensed therapists do, and it's simply not the truth. That doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, and not only that, but one of the other things that popped into my head when you were saying that is the fact that you have Christians who will say, well, I don't believe in psychotherapy. I'm not into worldly secular psychology. I think biblical counseling is the way to go. But what really amazes me, Christopher, is the fact that you have a lot of these biblical counselors who are watching these bans taking place at all these different locations around the country and saying nothing, and I've said for such a long time, I'm sure you've thought the same thing, don't you guys understand that even if you don't agree with secular psychology and the techniques that right. are used in secular therapy, you're you're going to be next. Do you understand? I mean, it's, well, n- it's not like it's they're going to stop. Naive. Yeah, it is. It's
2: very, it's, it's very naive because if they would understand that it's that it's not um, it's not uh, secular psychologists or psychotherapists that are being banned. It's the goal of the client's counseling. Okay, yeah, right. So if any of these biblical counselors that may disagree and and integrated, I use integrated, not secular methods, but integrated Christian counseling methods, if they don't agree with that, they're not going to be immune to these laws. Because if those biblical counselors are licensed and they want to practice under the state, they will be prohibited from working with these clients as well.
0: Right. Right. So there ought to be some solidarity there. There ought to be a coalition fighting this, but there doesn't seem to be a big coalition fighting this.
2: Well, more more and more people um, and more and more licensed therapists that are um, working with those who are struggling with these issues have banded together. But, um, you know, it's unfortunate that organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention um, have essentially turned a blind eye to what's happening on, on the state and national level. And in fact, Um, we can see through their leadership that they've almost actively opposed uh, measures to to try to fight against this. I I devote a whole chapter of this in my book.
0: You know what? Hang on. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back because I do want to talk about that. Christopher Doyle with us. The War on Psychotherapy is his book. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with healthcare for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold, and together, they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers.
2: You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to
1: walk with them.
0: Help send God's Word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMafford.com. We are back on Janet Buffer today. Thank you for joining us. And it's great to have with us Christopher Doyle. We are talking about his book called The War on Psychotherapy. Christopher is executive director of the Institute for Healthy Families and has such an incredible testimony of his own. But you are very concerned, Christopher, I know, about this war on psychotherapy, all of these bans on so called conversion therapy that are taking place. And before we went to the break, you had brought up the fact we were talking about, you know, even if you fall on the side of what kinds of techniques you prefer as far as helping people struggling with same sex attraction, whether it's biblical counseling or secular therapy or integrated therapy, we all have the same threat looming, and that is the LGBT activists who want homosexuality affirmed across the board. And that's really the ideology driving this. But you had mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention failing to get on board and really digging in and joining this fight. And it reminds me, back in 2014, you had some of these leaders, such as Russell Moore at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Kind of poo-pooing reparative therapy and kind of going in the direction of well, you know, we really don't want to do anything about that. Has that hurt the overall cause? Would you say as you've tried to keep therapy legal?
2: I believe that when Christians um, tear each other apart, I think it hurts the. I think it hurts the ideals of which we're standing on, which is the the freedom of Christians to be able to pursue, um, you know, therapeutic means in order to be able to help resolve some of these issues. I think. The problem that you have is there's a fundamental disagreement among members of the Southern Baptist Convention um, when they when they look at what type of counseling occurs or what, what what kind of counseling helps people. They look at it as a biblical only approach, whereas Christian counselors like myself we think an integrated approach. And what yeah. that means is we use the the values, the teachings, and the Word of God, and combine it with psychology. And I kind of I kind of describe it as the Bible. And, and Christian, Christianity tells us who we are, and psychology explains to us why we do what we do. And integrating those is the mainstream. And, and the American Association of Christian Counselors, which is over 60,000 uh, counselors in um, United States and worldwide, they take an integrated approach. The Southern Baptist Convention takes a new approach, and they right. believe Bible only. And, and, and for those listening out there that might not understand why that's a problem, let me, let me just give you a little bit of parallel. If you go into a medical doctor and you've got cancer, um, a a nuthetic approach, which is what the Southern Baptist Convention would take for counseling, would say, well, we're going to pray on you, we're going to use all the wisdom of the Bible to help you understand the causes of your cancer, but we're not going to use any medical treatments such as chemotherapy, to help cure you. It's just going to be prayer and Bible reading and fasting. Mm -hmm. And an integrated approach would say, no, we're going to use all the techniques that God has given us, both in the Bible and in creation, via science. We're going to use chemotherapy, we're going to use good drugs, we're going to use also support networks and counseling and therapy and everything at our disposal that we can do to help you through this. And this is exactly the type of thing that the Southern Baptist Convention is, is, is doing. They're saying, nope, science and creation and general revelation, which we know is a way that we receive truth, is invalid. Only the Bible can help you. And th- those of us that work in this field are saying, what are you talking about? Hmm. That is not a mainstream view psychology and science can indeed help and it says and it's not anti-god to believe in science it's not
0: right well what goes on you have counseled many many people i know and you have your own testimony what goes on in one of your therapy sessions? I mean, bring us up to speed on the truth about how clients get their goals met and how a therapist approaches someone, even if it's a minor coming in and saying, boy, I was sexually abused. Now I'm wrestling with these same-sex attractions and I don't want them. What goes on in that room when you are counseling somebody like that?
2: In the case of a minor or an adult that's been sexually abused and believe that their same-sex attractions have some sort of um, a result of that sexual abuse. The type of therapy that I use is focused on healing um, the abuse through trauma therapy. I use a, a very effective technique called EMDR, or Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and, and this is trauma-based therapy. It's not shame-based therapy. It's not a lecture shock therapy. It's not making people feel bad about who they are. It's about helping them resolve those issues that may be contributing to unwanted sexual desires or sexual attractions. And we know that there's a higher proportion of those in the LGBT community or those who experience um, non-heterosexual attractions that have been victims of sexual abuse and and molestation. It's it's a documented scientific fact. And so that population really needs to have effective um, therapy to help them resolve that. And, but that's not the only thing. That's, that's the medical conduct side, the medical side. The other part of it is if they ban talk therapy for those who want to resolve unwanted same-sex attractions, you're essentially telling a counselor like myself that has a Christian worldview that, that, there's, that they can't say that there is some sort of um, reason why someone feels same-sex attractions, that there isn't any sort of psychological or emotional problem with that that it's simply fine and normal and that you must affirm that. And you know what? For people like me who have resolved those homosexual issues and for other Christian counselors that that see that same-sex attractions come as a result of various forms of emotional brokenness, a lot of times unmet love needs in, in childhood adolescence and sometimes distorted ways of looking at themselves or looking at other of the same sex, um, that is the, a fundamental um, violation of the way that we view our sexuality and the way that our faith informs us of what is, is essentially God's ideal and what's not God's ideal. So we have to be able to, to place our opinions in the counseling room to help inform our clients. If we can't do that, then our clients simply can see and read what's in the culture, and the vast majority of the culture says, there's no problem with same-sex attractions. It's a natural variant of human sexuality. It's completely fine and normal, and there shouldn't be any reason why you should have a problem with that. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry, but there are those of us that do have a problem with that. We want to we wanna adhere to what the Bible tells us, and we want to figure out reasons why we feel that way. And Christians and therapists should be able to do that without having the state come in and say, no, you can't say that, or yes, you can say this. It's ridiculous.
0: It is it's ridiculous. It's
2: absolutely un-American. Oh, abs- un-American.
0: Absolutely, the war on self-autonomy. I mean, that's, that's the reality, but speaking of reality, you mentioned it's a war on reality, and it, it, this is the whole thing that's so outrageous about it. You talk, I know, in your book about California, what went down in California, and what now is happening in all these other states, and California had proposed that, what I think was Michael Brown's term for it, which was the must-stay-gay bill, where you can't, right. you can, if you're a homosexual, you have to say, you can't get any help you can't get any therapy that would involve any sort of yes, dealing with not this trauma
2: children but adults as well and adults that as well yeah
0: yeah adults so, as well
2: so for I, those who don't for those who don't know this i mean right now there's 18 states and over 45 cities that have banned this therapy for minors but what what janet is talking about is a bill called AB 2943 yep. which in california which was seeking to ban therapy for adults and this is actually something that's happened in two other cities New York City, which is currently being sued by a Jewish rabbi, they've banned therapy for adults that want to overcome unwanted same-sex tractions, and also Toledo, Ohio, of all places. Now, um, you know, this is something that was looked like to be a slam dunk in the state of California last year, but what happened was hundreds of people came out to protest against this law in the legislature, and dozens and dozens of um, former homosexuals and former lesbians came out to say that they had experienced life change in their sexuality and orientation and that they shouldn't take this right away. And I think some of that pressure, Affected the sponsor of the bill, who was an openly gay man, yes, and he decided to withdraw it at the last minute.
0: Yeah, we'll see where that goes. But what lessons can be learned? Would you say, Christopher, as we're getting more experience with different locations banning therapy, and it's you know ramping up? I think more and more Christians are being able to get to the point now where they're asking, what do we do to stop this steamroller? Because we understand the war on self autonomy and the war on reality is only ramping up. You just look at what's going on now with the transgender madness. And kids and hormone treatments and the havoc that waits down the road as these kids grow up and maybe change their views or change their their dysphoria resolves and they say, well, wait a minute, I went through this surgery. I mean, what do we do at this point in time, just not only as therapists, but as laymen?
2: Number one, I think that um, individuals, churches and Christians and conservatives need to start stepping up and we need to see more resistance against these types of bills being um, put out. I mean there was I'm not sorry not put out but passed um, There there was an an, an instance in, in a city in Florida a couple of years ago Where there was overwhelming resistance to these to this uh, bill that was trying to ban therapy and and the city council voted it down But the problem is that too many people simply don't understand this. They don't want to get involved in it They don't think it affects them, but it does affect them because you know they your if even if your child is not struggling with these issues someone in your child's school is. Yeah. You know, One of the things that you said was a war against reality, Dr. Michelle Cotella wrote the preface of my book, and for those who don't know, she's a, 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 an expert pediatrician and expert on gender issues, and in the preface, she talks about the fact that there are over 50 gender clinics around the United States that now are treating children with gender dysphoria, and let me just tell you this, Janet, The fastest growing population for clients that I have right now are children and families who are bringing their children into my clinic uh, in Northern Virginia as young as 11 years old with gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria, that these children are being told by school counselors and by the media that if they have gender identity uh, insecurity, um, not even necessarily that they believe that they 're wrong sex, but that they have gender identity insecurity. and and who among us at age eleven didn 't have gender identity and security as we were developing our bodies and going through hormone changes yeah, right yeah. but they 're saying that 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 the the immediate and the protocol for these children is to take them to a gender clinic, immediately get them on hormone suppression and puberty blockers, and start them down the path of what will eventually be permanent sterilization of their anatomy Ugh. and and mutilation of their body parts. I mean, this is happening as young as 10, 11, sometimes even younger. And Dr. Cortella says this, and I agree it's institutionalized child abuse. It is.
0: Yeah. I mean, how could you see it as anything else? And you wonder what will happen down the road when these kids grow up and begin to sue. Yeah, I was going to say it's going to be lawsuit city and who could really blame them. Well, you've got to read the book, The War on Psychotherapy. Christopher Doyle with us. Christopher, grateful for you. And it was so good to have you here. Thank you very, very much. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Back to Janet Meffer today, when we consider who the most important people were to the early church, we usually think of the apostles. We think of people like Peter, John, James, Andrew, and probably most of all, we think of the Apostle Paul. But what about some of those lesser known Christians who were maybe only mentioned in Scripture a few times but were indispensable to Paul's ministry? Who were these people and how can we be encouraged by their lives and ministry? We're going to tackle that today with Ryan Loxmo. He is the lead pastor of Real Hope Community Church in the Houston area and author of the book we'll be talking about paul and his team what the early church can teach us about leadership and influence ryan great to have you here thank you so much for being with us Thanks for having me. Sure thing. All right. Well, you know, I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when I was going through your book, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot mm-hmm. say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And that seems to really apply here as you're focusing on Paul's team, the people we don't often think about very much.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's it's very easy to think of him as this kind of singular figure uh, when you read the New Testament because so much of Acts is about his life. You know, he wrote all of these letters, and uh, of course he he did have a unique call, you know, Christ set him apart for the mission to the Gentiles. So in a sense, he is in a category all on his own, but he was a part of this broader team of people who were, like you said, indispensable uh, to what his ministry looked like, and, and he spoke about them with very Uh, lofty terms, you know, my fellow workers, and and, and he he spoke about um, just how much he relied on them, the vital roles that they played, but it's easy to kind of overlook them, because uh, many of them are just mentioned in passing in portions of his letters that are easy to skip over, you know, the beginnings or the very endings, where it seems like Paul's just kind of making some comments about you know, people he knows. It doesn't seem that relevant to our lives, and we can't pronounce half the names anyway, so we can just <laughs> kind of skip over it. Yeah. And uh, But these were people who, Paul, from what he said about them, uh, they were just incredibly integral part of what he was doing. And so to, to find out what that looked like, you've got to kind of take all these passing references and put them together, and then a picture, yes, begins to emerge of this team. And it's a uh, it's an inspiring thing to see.
0: Yeah, it really is. Who would you put at the top of the team? We'll kind of go down the list here a little bit, but for example, you think of people like Barnabas, and Barnabas the Holy Spirit sure. set him apart with Saul for the work that God mm-hmm. had called him to do. You think of Barnabas, but we don't know that much about Barnabas. We know some, uh, obviously, but would you put him at the top of the team list?
3: Uh, he would definitely be one of the people toward the top, certainly the the early stages of Paul's ministry, Barnabas was integral. I mean, he was he was uh, a critical uh, voice in helping the rest of the Christian leaders to even view Paul as a legitimate Christian, you know, coming right. from his background, and as you mentioned, the, you know, early uh, missionary journeys with Barnabas, and uh, so certainly in the early days of Paul's ministry, I don't think he had a better friend than Barnabas, yeah. at least from what we what we read. So he's definitely on that list. Um, I think, uh, you know, I would say Luke is high on that list and and he's actually kind of my personal favorite member of Paul's team that doesn't get a whole lot of press because he, he traveled with Paul a lot. Um, he's mentioned a few times by name in Paul's letters, but again, just kind of in passing, he doesn't get a lot of press Uh, but he, Paul talks about Luke being with him and traveling with him, and then the fact that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, yes. uh, those two books together by word count are more than all of Paul's letters. It's over 27% of the New Testament just by Luke, wow. and uh, so incredibly influential person on the, just the history of Christianity generally, but certainly in Paul's ministry, he was a, a key player. Um, so I would put him up there Timothy, I'd say, sure. toward the top, because he was seems to be the primary kind of protege uh, that Paul took under his wing, and so he had that mentoring relationship with him, among others like Titus. But Timothy seems to to kind of be a standout uh, case. Um, but I would also add, um, just kind of on a logistical front, I think the, the couple Priscilla and Aquila, right. I would put up there too, because, you know, they were supporting him financially, logistically, spiritually in multiple cities, uh, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus. And so they were a huge help on um, the support side of things. Yeah. So, you know, the, I mean, you could just keep going down the list of all the people who Uh, made such an impact on what he did.
0: Yeah. Now, when you look at figures like Barnabas and Timothy and Luke, for example, I'll take Luke as Uh an example because you talk about him as your favorite offstage influencer, (laughs) which I like, but he was interviewing witnesses. I mean, he was behind the scenes. You see Luke because you're reading what he wrote when you're reading the book of Acts and you're seeing all these names mentioned, but Why is he the most important, or at least your favorite offstage influencer? Is it because of the compiling that he did of the eyewitnesses and and all that?
3: I think so. You know, I think his work resonates down to us in the 21st century more than uh, many of the other members of Paul's team, at least in a more direct way, because we have his writings. Um, And like you said, you know, people have, have called Luke the first church historian, for that exact reason, he 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 lays out his methodology at the beginning of Gospel of Luke, traveling around, speaking with eyewitnesses, being diligent to chronicle what had happened, uh, for the purpose of building up our faith. And uh, I just think it's a neat thing that someone who played such a vital role in what the New Testament ended up becoming, um, you know, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. I mean, can, can you imagine uh, the New Testament without? those works. Uh, you know, so for him to, to be of that stature, uh, but then, and, and clearly a, an integral part of Paul's ministry, but still to kind of be a little bit behind the scenes, I just find that a very interesting um, example. And I think it can be inspiring to people today, because I think people today draw a very um, clear connection between, you know, the more visibility you have, the more influence you have. Yes. Uh, You know, there's this direct correlation, but Luke, I think, is someone who shows that that's not true. I mean, the lasting impact of what he did, and he was not, at least from what we see in the New Testament, one of those figures that was pushed to the forefront. We don't know much about him biographically. Um, but what, what, wow, what an impact he had.
0: For sure. What would we have done without Luke? <laughs> we wouldn't have known know. much about Paul, if you think about that's,
3: it. That's right.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and what about Barnabas in particular? Because he was such a key figure, but again, mm-hmm. more behind the scenes than Paul. What sort of role do you see him taking yep. when you're looking at the overall mm-hmm. overarching influence that he had on Paul?
3: I think, again, I, I think he was kind of the connection point of moving from a Jewish persecutor of Christians to um, an early church leader. He, he, I think he helped him kind of make that transition. That yeah. seems to be the picture, introducing him to the people he needs to know, vouching for him. And you know, we don't get a lot of description of it, but there are a number of years there early on in Paul's ministry um, where Barnabas was kind of his key contact. You know, Paul's back in Tarsus, and Barnabas goes and gets him. They're together in Antioch there in these early missionary journeys together, so when Paul was really getting his feet wet as a traveling evangelist, Barnabas was the guy. And what's really interesting, one of my favorite um, stories that's kind of buried in the weeds of Acts, if you're trying to get through it, in Acts 14 is when they come to Lystra, yes. and the residents mistake Paul and Barnabas for... Uh, Zeus and Hermes.
0: Yes, I love <laughs> that chapter. I
3: love that it's it, you know this kind of rustic pagan environment where they don't even understand each other. they're speaking a different dialect that you know there's a language confusion, but it says um, that they they thought that Barnabas was uh, Hermes because he or, or, or I'm sorry they flipped that around uh, because you know Hermes was like the spokesperson of Zeus, so they're thinking, okay Barnabas and Paul, that sort of meets the fits the bill and so. You know, Barnabas is clearly just right-hand man. He was there um, kind of, I think, mentoring Paul, but then becoming more of a teammate. And, of course, then they had their, their split over the issue of of Mark. Um, yes. And so, so that that's another thing we touch on in the book, of just ministry differences and reconciliation.
0: Absolutely. Well, there's more to talk about. We'll go to a break and come back with Ryan Loxmo. His book is called Paul and His Team. Stay with us. We'll return right after this on Janet Meffer Today.
1: Wood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes.
2: So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will. I will.
1: Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com.
0: When this young mom came to a pre-born center, she was planning to have an abortion. But after receiving love and support and meeting her baby on ultrasound, she chose life.
2: When I walked in for the ultrasound and I saw my baby and I heard his heartbeat, my mind changed completely.
0: I couldn't do that to my baby. I decided to keep it. Preborn partners with clinics in cities with the highest abortion rates in the country. Will you help preborn save these precious lives? When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And that's just the beginning of the story.
2: I know that with support and And with God by my side, I'll be able to do
0: this, not just for me, but for my baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMafford.com.
1: From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in
3: my hometown and it changed my life.
1: I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary christian music including amy grant michael w smith toby mack and Kirk franklin the jesus music only in theaters beginning october 1st more information is available at the jesus music.movie you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: We are back on Janet Mefford today. We know that we are all members of the body of Christ and all of us have a role to play. All of us have spiritual gifts and we work together as a body. But it's really interesting. We hold up the apostles as we should as wonderful examples of preaching and setting the early church in motion by the proclamation of the gospel and discipleship. But really, when you look at somebody like the Apostle Paul, how could he ever have done what he did without all of his team around him? Those people whose names you might see as you're reading through the book of Acts but we don't know a whole lot about them. There's a book out now, Paul and his team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence. Ryan Loxmo is with us, the author, and also lead pastor of Real Hope Community Church. So, Ryan, let's talk a little bit, as you mentioned, about Mark, because Mark is another Mm -hmm. figure that you mentioned in the book.
3: Yeah, Mark, uh, again, such an influential figure in the history of our faith, uh, having written the Gospel of Mark and being, uh, in the early days, in Paul's circle, but then part of this split, you know, that had to do with uh, Paul and Barnabas. And and so, you know, I write about him in one of the chapters in the book uh, under the heading of, uh, you know, reviving relationships after disagreement, Uh, because Mark had been along with Paul and Barnabas on part of a missionary journey, and then he kind of bailed on them. And then later on, when going out on this next journey, Paul and Barnabas had this um, bitter disagreement about whether Mark had come along, and, and that really divided them for, for quite some time. And uh, we don't have the whole story of what happened down the road, but we do see in Paul's letters, about 10 years later, plus or minus 10 years later, he, he starts mentioning Mark again as being in his circle, about being very valuable to him in ministry. And uh, of course, he went on, as I mentioned, to write the gospel of Mark, and, and he was also Uh, integral in the Apostle Peter's ministry in Rome, uh, from the ancient uh, historical sources we have. Uh, And that's why many scholars believe that Peter's kind of behind the Gospel of Mark a little bit. But I I think what it tells us, when you think about Paul and his team, is that Paul could have a a bitter disagreement over Mark. didn't even want to work with him. Like, I'm not even going to continue on this missionary journey if he's with us, type of... I mean, it was a really... A rough situation, and then ten years later, you know, he's describing how valuable he is, and I think that teaches us that number one, that disagreements and friction—it's going to happen in ministry. It happened to him; it's going to happen to us. Yeah. But the door was left open on some level. You know, the bridge was not burned. There, there was a, there had to have been the maintenance of that relationship on some level for Mark to then begin appearing in Paul's letters a decade later as this proven co uh, coworker of his. Yeah. And so so that disagreement that can be disheartening when we read about it Max that wasn't the end of the story. Right. I think that's inspiring and instructive for us.
0: Well, it is. And I go to Second Timothy chapter four, for example, where he says, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And then he goes on to talk about Tychicus and he mentions some of these people. So it's not just in the book of Acts that you see some of these names. You see them throughout the Mm -hmm. epistles, too.
3: Exactly, and that that's kind of the thing. I, I say in the book that um, Paul, his team and the lessons from how they work together have always been available to us. They're, they're there in the New Testament, but they're kind of hiding in plain sight, because what you just read is a great example. That's really easy to skip over. Yeah. If you're just reading 2 Timothy and you get to that portion, you're like, Yada yeah, okay, I got that. All these names, I don't know who these people are. Right. It's easy to skip over that, Um but those names are there. And so you have to start connecting dots with other places that they were mentioned and lining things up with the Book of Acts. And once you do a lot of that work, which is really the, the foundational work of this book, their role and, and what they did starts to appear. It's it's not hiding in plain sight anymore. You start to make those connections. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's it's neat to see the way those things Line
0: up. Well, and one of the things I really appreciate about passages like that one is you see that everything was not roses for Paul all of the time. You know, Alexander right. the coppersmith did him great harm, and he talks about mm-hmm. that, and Demas deserted me, and all the rest. So he. I mean, mm-hmm. in many ways, we can relate to this, can't we, in modern church life? Oh, this mm-hmm. wonderful Christian brother, and now he deserted me, and what do I do, and how do I resolve this right. conflict? How do you apply some of that to the modern-day church and how we should deal with conflict and what we can draw from how Paul dealt with his team?
3: Mm. Yeah, that's that's a, a great question. You know, um, in one of the chapters in the book, I, I talk about the fact that his team seemed to be relentless about reconciliation and that they wanted to restore relationships even when it was painful. And I think that that's the lesson for us, is like you said, it wasn't rosy. There were all kinds of disagreements, all kinds of discord, shockingly similar to what we deal with today. You know, competition between leaders, competition between churches, personal disagreements. Some people are fine eating meat sacrificed to idols, others aren't, and how do you negotiate that? I mean, the parallels are pretty striking with a lot of the conflict in the Church today, but paul and and the people around him seem to be committed to reconciliation pretty relentlessly and and um the example of second corinthians the let- the letter second Corinthians is i think a great um illustration of that for us you know he had a broken paul had a broken relationship with the corinthians and i I've described second Corinthians when you read it as like you're walking into the middle of a family fight and you have no idea how it got started. <laughs> And you're just like, wow. Um, And because he's referring to previous letters that are not 1 Corinthians, so he's been having this correspondence that was very tearful. He describes it, and and he wanted to continue. Paul wanted to continue in certain avenues of ministry, but he just couldn't shake the, the broken relationship with the Corinthians. So he's sending Titus, one of his coworkers, to go kind of mediate that dispute, and then you get to even see in Second Corinthians the joy and relief that Paul felt when he heard from Titus that they had come back to a place of, of love for Paul, and he was just overjoyed. I mean, it's such an emotional roller coaster uh, that letter. And I, I think the lesson for us on that is, number one, it's just going to be messy. Yeah. Like, just the fact that they had that disagreement, I think, is a big part of the lesson, just accepting that it's going to happen. But then showing that as as hurt as Paul was as painful as it was he didn't just write people off he didn't just give up he still he still loved those people and and believed that there was a way for them to come back uh, into fellowship with each other. So I think that's a that's a challenge for us today.
0: Yeah, it really is. You're right about that. What You mentioned earlier Priscilla and Aquila, and mm-hmm. there's a lot in, in the Bible about them, you know, when Paul mm-hmm. sailed for Syria with them from Corinth and left them in Ephesus, and they were very instrumental in helping Apollos understand the yep. way of God more adequately. Acts talks about that as well. There are people mentioned, and Epaphras is another one that's mentioned, who Uh are very important, but they don't get a lot of time in the Bible describing them. You know, here was Epaphras, who was this original evangelist. He was doing a lot Mm -hmm. of work there, but Paul was the one who got more ink. What about that angle? Kind of touching on what you said earlier, that just because you're out of the limelight doesn't mean that you're not crucial to the body of Christ.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think... um you know, Epaphras, like you mentioned, uh, Tychicus, those are great examples of that. You know, Epaphras appears to be, like you said, the original evangelist of the Lycus Valley where mm-hmm. Colossae is, and even that region of Ephesus, uh, which, of course, became very important in Paul's ministry, but he wasn't the first one there in some of these situations, and and so Paul speaks about them as being very, you know, when he talks about Epaphras, he talks about how valuable he is, you know, to the recipients of the letters, because they know who he is, because he was their first experience with Christ. uh, You know, Tychicus, you know, carrying letters, Epaphras did the same. You think about the letter carriers. Hmm. I mean, imagine imagine what our world, our faith life would be like without Ephesians or Colossians or some of these letters. You know, Paul dictated those letters or wrote them and then hands it off to someone like Tychicus or Onesimus or Epaphras, and then they walk for two months.
0: Wow. You know, <laughs> and, 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 and they're
3: struggling to find food. They're at risk of being robbed. Um, I mean, all the challenges that went along with travel and just painfully slow communication, they live that. Yeah. You know, they, they, had a, they had Ephesians in their pocket, and uh, it got delivered and it edified that church, and in God's, providence it comes down to us so yeah the idea that your influence is directly correlated to the amount of attention you get or ink is spilled about you it's just not it's simply not true yeah Um, and so it's a I think it's an important lesson for us to keep in mind
0: amen very very true well the name (laughs) of the book is Paul and his team what the early church can teach us about leadership and influence just a great read by Ryan Loxmo who's been with us Ryan so good to have had you thank you so much Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. God bless you, and thanks for being with us. All right. Well, thank you for joining us here on Janet Meffer Today, as always. We'll see you next time. God bless. This portion of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, remastered in 4K and including a new ending. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13, in theaters now.